So um, in case you missed it, uh, there was a wedding yesterday, not here, um, across the pond, a royal wedding, and uh, now there is a Duke and Duchess of Sussex. And I read from Wikipedia today that that, that uh, title has not been filled since 1843. Yeah, I know. So what? <laughs> <clears throat> oh, you mean he gets paid more? Fantastic. 80 years ago, though, um, his great-granddaddy um, became king uh, unexpectedly, right? Uh, George VI becomes king um, after his brother abdicates uh, to marry an American, <laughs> right? Um, here we are again. Um, I think uh, there was a tweet that came out a few weeks ago that says uh, this is actually uh, Great Britain's long game because now this is a way to reclaim America because now whatever kid issues from the American, like they can call us back in. Um, <laughs> might be a fight. We'll see. 80 years ago, George VI um, thrust into power unexpectedly right on the cusp of uh, Britain entering into World War II. And uh, you know the story because you saw probably seven years ago the one that the film that won Best Picture, The King's Speech. Colin Firth plays George VI. And that story is about how George VI has a profound stammer. And there's a, a line in the film where he says, um, the nation believes that when I speak, I speak for them, but I can't speak. And that's his pain. That's his horror. And he realizes the importance of words. And so he contracts with this Australian speech therapist named Lionel Logue, and, uh, who's going to be played by Jeffrey Rush. And uh, he begins to, to train him in how he can overcome that stammer. But in this scene that I'm about to show you here, uh, Lionel uh, reveals that he's not quite the authority he, that, that the George VI thought he was. Uh, yeah, he's a speech therapist, but he's got no training. He's not a doctor in how to treat speech impediments. And now that, that truth has come to light. And, and George VI, on the eve of his coronation, is realizing, I think I may have been misled by you. Listen to this scene from the king's speech, but listen with a, an, an ear to considering how much the idea of words plays into everything they're talking about here. Just listen. Give a very noble account of yourself. Make inquiries. It's all true. Inquiries have been made. You have no idea who I have breathing down my neck. I vouched for you, and you have no... credentials. But lots of success. I can't show you a certificate. There was no training then. Everything I know, I know from experience, and that war was some experience. My plaque says L. Logue, speech defects, not doctor. There are no letters after my name. Lock me in the tower. I would, if I could. On what charge? Fraud. With war looming, you've saddled this nation with a voiceless king. You've destroyed the happiness of my family, all for the sake of ensnaring a star patient you couldn't possibly hope to assist. It'll be like mad King George III. It'll be mad King George the Stammerer, who let his people down so badly in their hour of need. What are you doing? Get up! You can't sit there! Get up! Why not? It's a chair. No, it, that is not a chair. That is... That is... That is St. Edward's chair. People have that carved their names on it. Chair 
is the seat on which every king is held and in queen place by a large rock. That is the stone of scoon. You are, are trivializing are you everything. You trivialize. I don't care how many royal assholes have sat. Listen to me. Listen to me. Listen to you. By what right? By divine right, if you must. I am your king. No, you're not. You told me so yourself. You said you didn't want it. Why should I waste my time listening? Because to you? I have a right to no, be. And I have a voice. Yes, you do. A man who is looking to be able to speak is actually trying to find his voice. And he needs someone to help him. And he realizes implicitly that his words carry weight that no one else's does. And his country needs him, for with the words he speaks, he also leads. His words matter. And he even is thinking to himself, if I can't speak, what will people not just think about me, but say about me? Words. Words have so much power. And you know that. And as we go through our series in the book of Proverbs, we're going to look at Several texts that all have to do with words. And you should not be too surprised to discover that a whole book of Proverbs full of words, actually the one thing it has the most to say to is to what to do with your mouth. That if you don't know how to be wise with your mouth, you don't know anything. And if there's any thesis that's going to come out of all these texts, this is this. Every single word requires wisdom. Will you and I learn wisdom for our words? We'll only wield them well with wisdom. So we're going to listen to several passages from the Proverbs, all having to do with words, that we might find our voice. And we're going to learn three things about wisdom when it comes to words. Their potency, their provenance, don't worry, we'll unpack that term, and their purpose. Their potency their provenance, and their purpose. Friends, I don't think you're going to hear a single thing today that you haven't already heard before from someone else. And therefore, I would say to you, maybe the reason this sermon is this day is not for anything new that comes your way, but for the timeliness of the word. Only you and God knows why you might need to hear this today. So let's find out. If you're able to stand, we're going to read from several texts from the Proverbs. Proverbs, starting in verse 10, chapter 10, verse 6. Blessings are the head of the righteous, but the mouth of the wicked conceals violence. When words are many, transgression is not lacking, but whoever restrains his lips is prudent. The lips of the righteous feed many, but fools die for lack of sense. An evil man is ensnared by the transgression of his lips, but the righteous escapes from trouble. There is one whose rash words are like sword thrusts. But the tongue of the wise brings healing. Truthful lips endure forever, but a lying tongue is but for a moment. Lying lips are an abomination to the Lord, but those who act faithfully are his delight. Anxiety in a man's heart weighs him down, but a good word makes him glad. To make an apt answer is a joy to a man and a word in season. How good it is. 
The wise of heart is called discerning and sweetness of speech increases persuasiveness. The heart of the wise makes his speech judicious and adds persuasiveness to his lips. Gracious words are like a honeycomb, sweetness to the soul and health to the body. A fool's lips walk into a fight and his mouth invites a beating. From the fruit of a man's mouth, his stomach is satisfied. He is satisfied by the yield of his lips. Death and life are in the power of the tongue, and those who love it will eat its fruits. Whoever keeps his mouth and his tongue keeps himself out of trouble. This is the wordy word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. All right, buckle up. Here we go. First word, first idea. There is potency to your words. And therefore, you have to handle your words with care. And you knew that. But just in case you missed it, 1821 summarizes it rather nicely. Death and life are in the power of the tongue. And those who love it will eat its fruits. It's not even ambiguous. It's very clear. Death and life, darkness and light, despair and hope are in the power of the tongue. Which means in our words, when you're considering their potency, you're considering about their peril and their promise. Let's talk about their peril for a minute. What they can do, what harm they can do. From 1218, you heard him say, there is one whose rash words are like sword thrusts. They're that penetrating. Words that are ill-conceived, ill-chosen, ill-timed can wreak havoc. Kids, when you were really little, you learn from a very young age that a pinch or a bite or a smack, you could exert great power. You would have great influence. But when you got a little older, you discovered something else. You could bring someone to tears and you didn't even have to lift a finger. You just had to find the right word that made them feel awful, that ridiculed them, that despised them. You learned early that words are dangerous at times. And unfortunately, we parents and adults learn the same thing and we keep believing that same thing such that the famous philosopher John Paul Sartre said this, words are loaded pistols. They can do that. They can have that kind of damage. And that kind of harm is not just on somebody else. You can bring harm by your words upon yourself. So like it said in 12.13, an evil man is ensnared by the transgression of his lips. And then in 18.6, a fool's lips walk into a fight and his mouth invites a beating. Like, I don't even have to unpack that one. You see it. You know exactly what that's like. Some of you may have been an illustration of that idea at some times. Words, even a few words, can wreak the kind of damage you had no idea and bring it upon yourself. Some of you know the story of, of Justine Sacco. She, she was a, a high-ranking person in management of a PR firm, multinational corporation. She gets on a plane in D.C. and sends out a tweet, less than 140 characters, that was patently racist. She shuts off her phone to get on that flight. And in that 11-hour flight, 
from D.C. to South Africa. 10,000 people seize on that and seize on her and ridicule her and condemn her. And by the time she hits the ground in South Africa, everybody knows her name and she's also lost her job. One sentence. The whole world changes. Now, I'm guessing that very few of you in this room have that same experience where your whole life changed by a few words. But I bet you there's at least a few of us in this room that know exactly what it is to say a word and then to feel like that kid who has just connected with the ball on his bat and sees the trajectory of the ball as soon as it leaves and knows that's going for the window. That's going to cost me. You know that feeling. I know that feeling. When it comes to the peril of our words, therefore, that demands restraint. And you heard it put rather aptly in chapter 10, verse 19, when it said, when words are many, transgression is not lacking, but whoever restrains his lips is prudent. And then in 21, whoever keeps his mouth and his tongue keeps himself out of trouble. If we don't have any governor on our words, we are like the riding lawnmower that is stuck in gear with no driver. It will cut a swath whether we wanted it there or not. And therefore, to borrow a quote from, of all people, John Calvin, which I dare say will probably be the most memorable image you will come away with today, he says this, I consider looseness with words no less of a defect than looseness of the bowels. (laughs) Ah, consider the aroma of that text. Guns have a safety, right? Um, Cars have an emergency brake. Um, NORAD, they have two guys in that mountain with the keys so that one of them doesn't go all Dr. Strangelove on us and blow up the world. You need that kind of restraint. You need that kind of governance. And so uh, Mark Twain kind of famously said this, the right word may be effective, but no word was ever as effective as the rightly timed pause. Words require a care because they bring great peril if there is no wisdom applied to it. Now, I've made a big to-do about the peril of words. But before you and I think that we should just sort of give up on speaking, no. Because as I said, yes, it require, there, it, you, have to, you have to consider the great peril that is involved in words, but you also have to know that words hold great promise. The reason there are teachers in this world The reason there are poets in this world, the reason there are authors in this world is because words hold promise. Because in the same way that they work peril, they work promise by the way they work inwardly. And you heard that summarized there in chapter 10, verse 21, when it said, the lips of the righteous feed many, but fools die for lack of sense. Or what it says in 1225, anxiety in a man's heart weighs him down. But a good word makes him glad. There's that kind of potency in it. That fitly chosen words, timely spoken, can make all the difference. And if I had 8 minutes and 21 seconds to show you that culminating scene in the king's speech, I would. I don't have time. But when he makes that speech to England on the cusp of World War II, he is rousing that nation to sacrifice. He is rousing that nation to action. Because words have that potency. This week, 
I got a voicemail from my college pastor from 20 years ago that just brought me to tears. And it was the grand total of 30 seconds. He said, I pray for you often. I pray for your girlfriend often. And I'm grateful for you. Love you. See you. Bye. Words can rouse a nation. Words can lift a soul. Because they have that effect. And therefore, we ought not be hesitant. Aeschylus was a Greek tragedian six centuries before Jesus walks the earth. And he says this. Words are the physicians of a mind diseased. They go that deep. They have the capacity to go that deep. Do they always solve the problem? Of course not. But don't give up on words too soon, friends. Don't give up on words. What does Mufasa say to Simba? You're the child of a king. And it rouses him to a different course of action. Words have power. Words are real. And so you saw at the very beginning of our service, and you'll hear again from 1624, gracious words are like a honeycomb, sweetness to the soul, health to the body. They're that potent. And kids know that. Kids know that sometimes great or greater than a hug you give or the gift you wrap is the word you say. They make or break their day. They have an immeasurable promise in our words. And, it's, and, and, the, and the, the, the potency and the promise of them lies not just in those who hear those words, but in those who speak them too. In 1820, you heard him say, from the fruit of a man's mouth, his stomach is satisfied. He's satisfied with the yield of his lips. And then in 1523, to make an apt answer is a joy to a man. And word in season, how good it is. Friends, there is something rather intangibly beautiful about having the right word at the right time and speaking it. If words have that much promise, then we can't be hesitant in using them. Yeah, if they show great peril, then we have to exercise restraint. But if they show that much promise, then we need to exercise them liberally. Without hesitation. Because if they work health, if they work encouragement, if they bring rescue, if they are able to work justice and mercy and, and to, to corroborate something Ella said in her announcement, they also work great power and compassion. In a text that you remember from a few weeks ago on the wisdom for the weakened, in, in chapter 31.8 it says this, Open your mouth for the mute, for the rights of all who are destitute. Because apparently words have promise to speak for those who have no voice themselves. That's the potency of them. They have great peril. They have great promise. If they have great peril, then we have to exercise restraint. If they have great promise, then we have to exercise great liberality. But here's the problem. How do I know when to do what? I mean, the implications of the potency of our words means this. Some of you, some of you need to speak up when you would just as soon clam up. Others of you need to pipe down when you would otherwise mouth off. And you know who you are. But while that's a little help, it's not a lot of help. Because how do you know? Like there are some moments where you might be the one to mouth off that you probably need to. And there are other moments where you probably should be quiet, but what do you do? Some insight is, look, what do you find yourself regretting more? Uh, What you said or what you didn't say? You'll have a trend there, and it should be wisdom for yourself. But if we're really going to get to the heart of the problem, 
We can't simply say, you know what? It's got peril and it's got promise. Congratulations. Enjoy. You got to go deeper. Because every single word has a motivation. And until you get to the words about motivation, you don't really know whether your words are bound for peril or bound for promise. And that gets us to our second point. Yes, wisdom for words requires you grapple with their potency. But wisdom for words also means you got to grapple with their provenance. Not providence, right? Reformed church, providence, Calvin, all that. No, provenance is nothing more than talking about the point of origin. If you are an art critic, then when I say the word Baroque art, then you know that the Baroque art has a provenance of 17th through the 18th century Europe. That's the provenance, the era in which Baroque art originated. If you're talking about champagne, that bottle, if it says champagne and not sparkling wine, means that that bottle that says champagne originated from a region within 150 miles of Champagne, France. Outside of that, it's beyond the provenance of that era area in which you can properly call something champagne. Those things speak of a point of origin. Everything has a point of origin, including your words. They all come from somewhere. They don't come from nowhere. And newsflash, they don't usually come from what's outside of you. Where do they come from? They come from where you hear in chapter 16, verses 21 and 23. The wise of heart is called discerning, and sweetness of speech increases persuasiveness. The heart of the wise makes his speech judicious and adds persuasiveness to his lips. Your words come from your heart. From your deepest set of beliefs, the quality of those words, the effect of those words turns on the character and the condition of your heart. Jesus says as much in Matthew chapter 12 when he says, for out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good. The evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. (sighs) Ouch. He's speaking to scribes and Pharisees in that moment. And he's sort of applying the idea that James talks about, about not everyone should be teachers because you'll be held to greater strictness. Jesus gets that. He's applying that to these Pharisees and scribes. But he is giving us an anatomy lesson. He is saying all of your words either betray or belie the language of your heart. They come from there. Words always reveal what you most believe for the most part. And so if you find yourself as the kind of person that feels necessary to answer quickly and to dominate a conversation, it's because you believe you have a need to be heard. Whereas if you're a person that never says anything at any time, doesn't mix it up, doesn't stir the pot, you have a certain belief that says either my words aren't worth sharing Or the pain of rejection is too strong for me to risk that thing. And when it comes to our silence, always to defer to your hesitancy to speak, it, it, it risks something. It risks regret. Harriet Beecher Stowe in Uncle Tom's Cabin wrote this. 
the bitterest tears shed over graves are for words left unsaid. For whatever reason you hold back, for whatever reasons you stop, there is in that a regret. But there's even something worse than regret in the midst of your silence. And from that, I borrow something from a famous quote from Martin Luther King Jr. who said this, In the end, we will remember not the words of our enemies, but the silence of our friends. If we will not speak, it is because we believe something deeply, whether we've thought about that or not. If the potency of our words requires that we handle them with care, then the provenance of our words being from the heart, that requires some reflection. The discipline of reflection. Kids, it is never too early for you to begin practicing this discipline. To ask yourself on a regular occasion, why am I saying what I'm saying? Why is that out there? What provoked me to say that? Your first instinct will be to say, because of what they did. And I'm here to say, no, it's because of something that's in you. And the question is, what is it that's motivating that? Why is it? You have to ask yourself, why am, why am I the kind of person that gets so defensive in our words or, or becomes really brusque with my responses? Why, why am I a person that never says anything to stir the pot? Why, why am I the kind of person that maybe, maybe likes to find people that are kind of like-minded with me and kind of build a, a coalition against people that are different from me or who have disagreements with me? Why do I think that's the greatest good rather than engaging with people that might have a different perspective? Why am I interested in gossip? One of the perks of knowing my wife, who was born in the South, is to teach me the adage, far be it from me to G-O-S-S-I-P. What gives us that? Why do we go there? Why do we like to talk in those terms? Well, funny you should ask, because listen to a bunch of people exercising a little bit of reflection about why they gossip. Why do, why do we gossip? Good question. Um, why do we gossip? Uh, I think to feel better about ourselves and to uh, attach ourselves to the other person that we're gossiping with. We want to compare our own to theirs. We want to see that they're just as valuable as we are, that they make just as many mistakes. Most uh, likely because it's kind of fun and it's kind of interesting and it plays to that low pot of everybody. I think people gossip because they're focused on what's outside of them rather than what's inside. The ego loves drama, so the ego creates drama and focuses on drama so it doesn't have to feel its own pain. And it makes people feel like better to talk about other people's damage and brokenness. It's the one time we get to completely forget about our own flaws and just focus on other people's. So there's a certain amount of joy in going like, you know what, you know what that guy really needs to do if he wants to improve his life? And then you go through all the things that they should do and really a lot of it you should probably do as well. Reflection. Because there's something delicious about gossip. Otherwise, nobody would gossip. And so they're all having to reflect on like, what's going there? What, what, why do we get out of it? What, what's the good of it? What's the short-term good of it? 
the provenance of our words requires that kinds of reflection. But, but even that reflection, as, as, as helpful as and insightful as it might be, it's, it's actually not the solution. You, you do need to ask yourself, why are you speaking in those ways? But, but that itself is not the solution. The solution comes down to asking yourself the question, what are the purpose of my words? Where do we go from here? What are words out to serve? And that's my third point. Yes, we've talked about their potency. Yes, we've talked about their providence. But, but have you ever thought about what is the purpose of words? Now, right now, if I just said that, I think most of you would say my words are there to convey information, to express myself, to get information across. And that would be true. But the Proverbs are here to tell us that there's an actual grander purpose to our words. Both of which come from what you heard in chapter 12, verses 19 and 22. Truthful lips endure forever, but a lying tongue is but for a moment. Lying lips are an abomination to the Lord, but those who act faithfully are his delight. There, I would argue, is the purpose of our words. It's, a, it's one purpose with two facets. And the first facet has to do with the purpose of our words is that we would give voice to that which is going to endure to what will prevail, to what is going to last, to that which has a long-term future for itself. If, if that which is true is real, then that which is real will last. And so the purpose of our words is to, to, to give voice to that which is going to it's going to persevere. It's going to go on forever. You know, uh, politicians get a bad rap for understandable reasons because usually what they have to say is not really speaking what will endure. They just speak about what will be popular at the time. What will gain support, whether to gain it or to increase it or to preserve it, whatever that is. And I know politicians, you can't put them all in the same bottle, but that's what they're appealing to is whatever has the most cachet, the most popularity with people, that's what they'll speak. But three years from now, it's all revised. Politicians do that. Shocker. But guess what? So do you. And so do I. Every occasion for speaking has both a short-term interest and a long-term interest. And how you think about the purpose of words determines whether or not you go for the short-term gain or the long-term one. If somebody has ripped you up and down, taking you to the woodshed, your short-term interest might be to get all defensive, to become all recriminating, not to listen to them, to fight back, maybe even to be manipulative with them, and then go find your little group of people to support you and not really even consider what they have to say. That's a short-term interest. A long-term interest? Understanding. Peace. Partnership. Those have a long-term interest. They require a different quality of heart. But when we talk about the purpose of our words, we're always trying to consider that long-term interest. Every opportunity to speak is always having to take into consideration what is true about the kingdom of God that Jesus came to usher in. He speaks of things that are passing away. He, thinks, he speaks of things that will endure. And so whenever we have an opportunity to speak, we have to ask ourselves, is what I'm sharing going to be part of the kingdom? Is the motivation that leads me to speak in the way I do, is that sort of motivation the thing that will endure or the thing that will pass away? Our words, their purpose has to do with giving voice to what will endure, which gives us the other picture of its purpose. 
It's to speak that which the Lord delights in. You heard the proverbialist say in verse 22, lying lips are an abomination to the Lord, but those who act faithfully are his delight. He's creating the stark contrast between deceit and fidelity. The Lord abominates what is deceitful and he celebrates what is truthful. And so our purpose of our words is to give voice to that which he would take delight in because it's true. Friedrich Bigner, a theologian of an earlier century, he said this in a poem, lying to God is like sawing the branch you're sitting on. The better you do it, the harder you fall. When we speak truth, we are imaging God because we are made in that image. And if partly what it means to be made in his image is to speak as he speaks, to speak as truth, then we fulfill that image by speaking that which he delights in, namely truth. Which all sounds great. But how? What will renew my heart that I might actually prefer to speak in a way that delights in him, in a way that endures. Because if I'm honest with myself, most of my words have one glory in mind, mine. Have one version of good in mind, mine. What will renew us? How do we begin again? How do we ensure that our words fulfill that purpose? One more clip from the King's speech. So please stand uh, and take it with that from there. No, no. I, can't, I can't read this. Well, then you owe me a shilling for not trying. <laughs> to be. Or not to be. No. Can't be. Uh, 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 I haven't finished yet. I'm going to record your voice and then play it back to you on the same machine. You're playing music. I know. So how can I hear what I'm saying? Well, surely a prince's brain knows what its mouth's doing. You're not well acquainted with all the princes, are you? To be or not to be, that is the question. 
Whether it is nobler in the mind to suffer the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune, or to take arms against a sea of troubles and by opposing end them, to die, to sleep, no more. And by a sleep to say we end, the heartache and the thousand natural shocks the flesh is heir to. Hand him the book. Let him recite from Hamlet, and he can't do it. Put the headphones on with the wonderful music in his ears, and somehow he is liberated. He has to hear something in in order to speak something. He has to hear that which is grand to get his mind off himself that he might speak something that was worthy of this world. That, my friends, is why we're coming to this table If you and I would fulfill the purpose of our words, we must hear a melody of something grand that we might forget ourselves, something of great beauty, that we might speak with beauty, that we might finally speak of something worthy of ourselves and worthy of the Lord who gives us voice. We must hear a melody. And that melody is the gospel. And that melody has two strains at this cross. The first verse of that melody is here to say, you have no rights in this world except to be humbled. This cross sings to you and silences your claim to a right to yourself, silences your version of self-righteousness that you think you possess, silences you. And it humbles you in the process. George VI stammered for a word. We stammer at our love. And it's the cross that silences our claim to ourself. We have no right but to be humbled. That's the song of the gospel. But at the same time, its second verse is there to say, not only do we have no right but to be humbled, but we have every reason to believe that we're loved. If you heard Reverend Curry speak that wedding homily yesterday, then you heard him tell that young couple, Jesus didn't die for you so that he could get an honorary doctorate. He died for love. When he was silent before his accusers, he was silently screaming his love for anyone, even those who have used their words foolishly. Because in that love, there is forgiveness. And in that song, there is hope. And in that song, there is love. And when we are humbled, we learn to restrain ourselves from using our words that might do harm. And when we have a reason to believe that we're loved, we're liberated to say some words that we might otherwise be afraid to speak. And that's why we need the song that's at this table. And so I leave you with two questions before we come to it. What do you need to say that you have not said? What is a word that needs to hear the light of day that you have held back that you might share in love, even if it's painful and though it's not harmful? But on the flip side, what is a word that you have said that you may need to retract, for which you may need to ask forgiveness, to say, I'm sorry? Hearing the melody of the gospel is what invites us to both that we might finally ensure our purposes of our words. And so I leave you with the last word from Blaise Pascal. Kind words don't cost much. They never blister the tongue or the lips. They make other people good-natured. They also produce their own image on men's souls, and a beautiful image it is. There was no kinder word to us than the word made flesh. And when he dwelt among us and suffered for us, He confirmed to us God's delight. 
And when we believe that we are his delight, we're at last free to speak the words in which he delights as well. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.